Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey, it's Anthony here and welcome to today's podcast. Whether you're a first-time listener or perhaps you tune in every week, it's always good to have you join me here. Thank you for the ratings and reviews for the podcast. I really appreciate it. As you probably heard me say before, ratings and reviews are extremely helpful and greatly appreciated. They do matter in the rankings of the show and they help other people to find the podcast. I also love to hear what's been helpful. So if you too would like to leave us a review, all you need to do is go to the Apple Podcast app, search Grow My Salon Business, and scroll to the bottom of the page and leave a review. It only takes a minute and it helps others to find the podcast. My guest on today's episode is London-based hairdresser, salon owner, editorial stylist, product developer, and general hairdressing visionary, John Vial. As you're about to find out, John has been involved in lots of areas of the hair and beauty business and continues to inspire at many levels across the industry. In today's podcast, we'll discuss the TV makeover show, 10 Years Younger in 10 Days, John's TED Talk, the challenges with salon ownership and the industry today, and developing a product line with a difference, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, John Vial. Anthony Whitaker, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I've listened to some of your podcasts. They're brilliant. So thank you. I'm quite looking forward to it and well, slightly nervous, both of equal measure. No, no, no. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. I know you're not short of a word or two, and I know you've got some great opinions about, you know, the hair and beauty industry and the world that we live in coming at it from lots of different angles. I know you're very articulate. Uh, and so I know this is going to be a great episode. Um John, let's start off with what I, I, I pretty much always do this. I pretty much ask people to to sort of do their two-minute backstory and just to sort of introduce themselves to the listener, and then we can dig into it. So uh, over to you. Who is John Vial? Well, I was born in Derby in the Midlands and two Irish parents. And during the six weeks holiday, I would always go back to Ireland because my mum couldn't take time out to work. So I would stay with my grandmother. And as she got elderly, by the time I was about nine or ten, there would be times when she'd go off to hospital. So what would they do with me? They'd just throw me into my uncle's barbershop. And I was mesmerised by this. Uh, you know, I used to think it was just extraordinary. And it was the 70s. So you can imagine a lot of guys had longer hair. They would come in, you know, towards the end of September. Sorry, the end of August, ready to go back to school. And they'd have all the hair cut short. On this transformative thing so that's how it started you know then then I, you know it was the 80s it was the early 80s so we were doing all these ridiculous things in the girls toilets you know cutting hair you know getting myself into trouble then i left there and became a hairdresser and i was taught by this incredible swiss guy who really knew how to dress hair in an epic way so i so i started working for him he trained me really how to dress hair and by the time I was about 19, I realized I just couldn't cut hair. Like I was really good at manipulating and forcing hair into a very specific direction, but I wasn't very good with wash and wear or really cutting hair. So I knew the only way to get around that was to go to Sassoon. So I went to Sassoon's as a Vardra. For those who don't know, that's kind of somebody who's qualified but retrains for six months. I did that in Leeds. 
And I remember thinking, if they just even employ me, even if I don't pass the tests, uh, you know, I, I'll just be pleased to work at Sassoon's. Anyway, they, I did pass the test. Tim Hartley took my test and I passed. Gave me distinction. I was very pleased with that. And, and that was kind of the beginning of the journey, you know, and, and, and it's, been, it's been quite a journey. It's been, it's been really good fun. So that's how I started hairdressing. Okay, well, we've got lots there to uh, to dig into. That was interesting. I never knew that uh, your, it was your uncle's barbershop, you know, that it was men's hairdressing that first got you intrigued, but then you got into the women's side of the business and you developed the skill with your hands and the visual aesthetic rather than the technical. And I think that that is a really important thing because we both share that heritage of Sassoon. Um, I never learnt that sort of visual way to dress hair and manipulate hair with my with my hands uh but i obviously i learned you know to be a good technical hair cutter and i think it's so important to have that balance and i was going to ask you about this later on but it seems like the perfect time to ask you about it now and that's that uh, i i know you did a, a a ted talk and um i'll put the link to that ted talk in the show notes for today's podcast for anyone who wants to look at it because it's well worth looking at but there was one thing you said right at the beginning and i just thought wow that is so simple so obvious and so perfect and you said something about the hairdressing isn't just about making someone look good but it's about making them feel good and i know that's an obvious thing to say but it's like sometimes you hear something that's an obvious thing to say and you go wow that is so important so talk to us about that statement because i think there's an awful lot in there well just to backtrack slightly you know when i went for my first interview to work in a salon and i think i was probably quite tall for my age so i looked older than i was and and i was only actually 14 i just turned 14 so i my birthday was 6th of september and it was the second week in september i think i went for this interview so i was just 14 i've still got another couple of years maybe three years to go at school actually and I remember this guy that Rennie, Rennie of Switzerland, who taught me how to dress hair, said to me, you know, what's the, the greatest part about Christmas? And I was like, well, getting presents. And he was like, yeah, but what else? And I was like, well, I don't know, the decorations. I couldn't come up with it. And, and, and he asked my mother, who'd attended the interview with me, because I was so young. And she, he said, what is it for you? And she said, well, it's, it's about giving the gift for me, not receiving the gift. And I remember thinking, at, you know, 14, why would anybody want to give a gift? <laughs> And, and actually, as I got a bit older, I started to realise in hairdressing that it is truly, I mean, it sounds like we're being hysterical, but you know this delivery. When you really give somebody that, you know, that, that gift, yeah. you sort of see that reaction and they're so overwhelmed. And, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to say when, when women have cried in my chair, it's been because they, they can't believe their own reflection rather than because they've been di bit, bitterly disappointed. But what was really interesting was when I, when I, I sort of knew that we gave somebody an external look and made them feel better. But weirdly, I've been working on this program called 10 Years Younger. And at the end of it, which is 10 years younger than 10 days, actually. And at the end of it, you show them the reveal and the, and the producer maverickly takes that one second where they where they see themselves and they slow it down to super slow so it lasts for about six seconds but it's what would normally happen in the blink of an eye yeah and what i've never noticed before was that first of all there's that look of absolute confusion like they're looking at themselves and they're like they don't recognize themselves for an instant mm. then there's the look of shock where they realize oh my god it actually is me i look completely different and then an incredible thing happens and it happens every time they literally rise their neck becomes taller and they stand back and they really admire themselves and it was at that moment that i realized that what we give to the outside world, people think is we give them and we give we change the outside, 
But what I realized from that slow-mo is actually what we do is we, we change the inside. And, and, and you only see that when you slow it right down. But it's extraordinary to understand that level of confidence that you give to somebody. So, so the gift we give actually is internal much more than external. And, and I didn't realize that. I've been here just in 40 years. I, I hadn't realized that until now. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I actually, I mean, this is something that I'd literally forgotten about. I used to do a TV show, a makeover show uh, in Australia. I'm talking 25 years ago. And I did about five episodes of it. And it was the same sort of thing. It was a reality TV show where they took, you know, uh, Mrs. Smith off the street and you gave her a complete makeover. However, the reason I thought about it was because the reveal was very staged <laughs> you know they knew exactly what they were going to look like and so we had to we had to sort of shoot the reveal several times so that it started to uh you know to look natural but but that's that's really interesting um now this tv show that you're doing uh 10 years younger um i know it's a uk based show but does that is that one of those formats that is exported everywhere it's actually an old show called 10 Years Younger, and we, we've done a new version of that, which is called 10 Years Younger in 10 Days. There's this idea that it has to be uh, something that can be delivered to, to the general public rather than somebody going away and having a facelift and all that. Because financially, it's not viable. Some people can't do because of work, whatever. So it really is 10 Years Younger in 10 Days, and, and they absolutely do not see themselves. You know, we hire hotels that have got no mirrors in them. They would take the mirrors out. They, they literally don't see themselves. They've got drivers that take them everywhere. You know, they're going to the great life. But um, what it did was it was really successful here in the UK. It's on Channel 5. And we weren't expecting it to be as successful as it was. And what would normally happen with that kind of a program is you'd normally syndicate it throughout the world. So if you think of something like the X Factor, there would be, you know, American X Factor, Australian X Factor, Filipino X Factor, you know, there'd be all that. So that's kind of what we expected to happen. But actually, it's been sold to 130 countries. So it's extraordinary how well it's done. And it's, it's pretty big in America. It's pretty big in Australia, New Zealand. It's, it's in Portugal. It's in South America. So I get all these things on my Instagram from these people who, who love it. It's incredible, really. It's become this really global. And actually, recently, I was looking on Facebook and, you know, we're doing some work on, on, on the stats. And we've realized there's over 42 million views it's it's kind of crazy how the world has, has just expanded and you know wow. the internet made things happen really quickly right that's fantastic how did you get that do you know what actually Anthony the truth is nobody knows how I got that even the producer who I speak to I'm like how did you get she said, you know somebody in the office mentioned you John I know they didn't get it from my Instagram because actually because it's a makeover of very real people and very real hair and my Instagram's a bit a bit cuckoo you know it's a bit all those weird weird and wonderful yeah, things I know. you know which is just my own record really of things yeah, I've yeah, done yeah. so I know that if, if the producers had looked at my Instagram I'd have, I wouldn't they wouldn't have even interviewed me they've struck, struck me off the list so, so they don't know they remember seeing you know somebody said why don't you go and speak to this guy John Bial and so there was, they asked lots of hairdressers to do it and I was lucky enough to be the one that that they chose I think it's because I'm I don't shy away in front of a camera Anthony as you've probably gathered by now <laughs> well no you don't I want to talk to you about that later um uh, because there's a lot of young hairdressers or not so young hairdressers that listen to things like this and, or watch it on tv and they go oh my god I could do that or I'd want to do that I'd love to do that and uh it, it's it's you know how you create those opportunities I mean for some people those things are just presented to them and they literally don't know where they've come from as you just said other times there's a there's a direct sort of path up the mountain uh let me ask the same thing about the TED talk that you did how did how did that come about so the TED talk really I'm 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 developing my own product line at the moment and it was 
actually designed about seven years ago. The, the bottles were designed by somebody called Zaha Hadid, who's probably, they, they call her a, a star architect, or, or BBC4 actually called her an iconoclast. I didn't even know what an iconoclast was, but an iconoclast I now understand is somebody who smashes the ideas of icons that came before them, which is exactly what Zaha did. Mm. And anyway, she designed these bottles for me, for my, for, for, my, for my brand, and then she died, unfortunately, and I decided it would be the wrong thing to do. So uh, I decided just not do it. And I, I saw her niece would be the nearest person she's got to a daughter. And she said, oh, how's the brand going, John? And I said, oh, you know, I decided not to do it. I felt like I was trading on the back of Zaha and I felt it was a little bit disrespectful. And she said, no, no, what's disrespectful, John, is is this idea that you, that, that she's put all that work into it. You know, because it was twos and fros and twos and fros and make it a bit more this and make it a bit more that and it has to be that and it can't be a pump and all those different things that we had to take into consideration because of sustainability. And and so anyway, long story short, we, we re-embarked on it. But what, I, what was important for me was that I did something that was morally right. I, you know, I want to make a lot of money, and, as we all do, but I don't want to do it at the cost of the planet or any animals. Or So I had to ensure the ingredients were really were really you know, justified and, and they'd come from the right place, which we can talk about or not as you want to. But ultimately, the only way to do that is by using blockchain. And we all have our areas of expertise. And obviously mine, I hope, is in the, the idea of hair. So I found a blockchain expert called Sandeep who'd worked for some of the biggest brands in the world, like the biggest, biggest companies in the world. And nobody in beauty is using blockchain to show the transparency and supply chain. And so that's how the TED Talk was born, how we, how we would take an everyday thing like a bottle of shampoo or, 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 or in beauty, a bottle of moisturizer. And how could we ensure that we weren't damaging the planet? And so that's what the TED Talk was all about. And I'm actually going to be doing another one soon, all about hair and why people shouldn't, why people should become hairdressers because the numbers are dwindling. Okay, well, th- there's so many things I want to pick up on that you've just gone over. Uh, let's let's go back to your product thing for a minute. Uh, let's go back to blockchain. Uh, I know a little bit about blockchain purely because you explained a little bit about it to me before we started recording. But I'm thinking the average listener is going to go have no idea what blockchain is. Uh, so, so in in layman's terms, um, how could you describe what blockchain means? Well, it, you know, it's really important for me to start by saying I'm not a blockchain expert. It's not my area of expertise. But, you know, anybody who's, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm particularly smart, but if you are smart, you surround yourself with people who are experts in their arena. And, and, and Sandeep Krishna is. And so in a very short, I mean, you'll, a lot of people think, you know, when I tell them about blockchain, they're like, well, what's, what's that got to do with cryptocurrency? And I'm like, well, we're not using cryptocurrency. But the re- blockchain was born for cryptocurrency. Yeah. And and what that means is if, if, you know, the bank, if I borrow money off the bank and then I pay it back, to the bank and, and you get involved and you take off it. There's no real transaction there or somebody in the bank could amend that and nobody would ever see that it happened. So, you know, the reason that cryptocurrency uses blockchain is because blockchain is absolutely transparent and cannot be eradicated. So in a nutshell, a block of information is made, whatever it is, whether it's the inf- you know an information about a product, you know, an ingredient in the product, you've got that block. I then send that block over to Anthony Whitaker. And within that time, it goes out to millions of computers. So if you and I decide to try and eradicate that, we can't do it. We'd have to go to millions of computers to try and undo it. So it's a really safe way because once once it's happened, it can't be undone. You might then send it on to Vidal Sassoon and Vidal then would would, would take it and it would have gone out to another few million companies. So there's no way of undoing the the, the chain. Each block is chained together and you cannot undo it. So that's why it's using cryptocurrency. It's a really safe way of ensuring that what's come through to you is absolutely accurate. And that's what I want to do using the ingredients 
in the supply chain. I want to use blockchain so I can absolutely pinpoint all the way along that journey from farm to the shower where all those ingredients have come from. Has the farmer been paid fairly? Was he paid not fairly? And therefore his children are out picking more berries because he's not being paid fairly. Was an animal hurt on the way? Did we cut down a rainforest? All of those things. Did we use too much plastic? And by using blockchain, I'll be able to prove to my consumer, yes, it's more expensive, but ultimately I can guarantee you that no animal was harmed. We didn't use excess plastic. We haven't destroyed the planet. You know, we, we've paid people fairly. You know, I win, you win. And I, I, what I don't want to be is a fat cat that sits on top of a, a billion dollars and, and feel, well, I can sleep well because I've got a billion dollars but i know there are people who are starving so that's ultimately where the ted talk came from <laughs> okay all right um product lines uh what, what the day you woke up and thought the world needs a new product line uh what is it about your product line? what's it going to be called it's still a working name to be honest so we, right. we, we've not we've not finalized the name from being okay. really, really so the name is in, in massively important for all sorts of reasons you yeah. know, but but we've not finalized the name in a nutshell Right. What, what's the, the what's the real point of difference going to be about it in terms of a product line? What what is it going to do that other product lines don't do? So we're so we're we're rewriting the way people shampoo and condition their hair. So we're, we're trying to reinvent the wheel to some degree, or at least change the direction of the wheel. And as I explained earlier, this idea that you know nobody on the planet, as far as I'm aware, can look at a bottle of shampoo or conditioner or moisturizer and say, okay, I know where that came from. I know where the background from. I know that it was, I know everybody was paid fairly. I didn't destroy the animal, all those things. And, and I think we'll be the first to use blockchain to ensure that, that, that what you're receiving is pure product and you know where it's come from. That's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Okay. And the world's changing, you know, young people demand it, you know, it's, it's the way the world's going to have to be if yeah. we're going to survive. Yeah, well, this is exciting. I look forward to to you know seeing how that evolves. Uh, let's get back to the hairdressing thing for a bit. I know you were uh, at Sassoon for how long? How many years? I think I was there thirteen years. 13 years. Okay, all right. And and then sort of during that time, you transitioned into being more of an editorial uh, right. stylist. Talk to us about that because it's an interesting transition in that. Before you started at Sassoon, as you said, you were very competent with your hands and shape and feeling and texture, you know, and dressing hair. And then Sassoon obviously gave you a very, you know, strong technical basis of cutting hair. Uh, and then you made that transition to editorial stylist and very successfully. Uh, so it's not really a direct question, but talk about what's involved in that transition and what's involved in succeeding as an editorial stylist. I mean, you know, there's an element of, of luck goes into everything that happens in your life in your right time, right place. I think Vidal would have been the first person to say the first person to say that. Although the other thing that Vidal says, which I quote frequently, is this idea that the only place where success comes before work is in the dictionary. So I, I kind of buy into that spirit as well. But ultimately, you know, we sat down with Procter and Gamble and said, you know, we need to really save London Fashion Week. It's going, it's going to die because, unfortunately, and I don't want to turn to a political thing, but unfortunately, the British government at that time just weren't supporting fashion. So, so, so the idea was that all these people, McQueen and Galliano and all these people were going off to Paris because they were getting funding from the Parisian Fashion Council, So, which is where the British Fashion Council have really helped. And I work with them still. Caroline Rush is the CEO, is a very good friend of mine, and we still work on that. And I know she's very passionate about sustainability. But anyway, during the beginning of 94, Sassoon suddenly became the official sponsor of, of London Fashion Week. And actually, not, not too long after, we became the official sponsor of New York Fashion Week. And then, you know, there was that there was a slight panic when we all sat around a boardroom table and we were like, 
oh my God, we're, we're wash and wear hairdressers. And wash and wear hairdressers do not work at Fashion Week. You know, it's all about forcing hair into something that you don't want it to be naturally. And so, so because I was a Vardra and because I'd learned how to dress hair and finger waves and pin curls and tongue in and all that stuff that you don't really learn as soon as it's a completely different kind of hairdressing really stood in good stead for me and so so that's how I was born into that so I started working a lot of fashion week working a lot on the shows with Billy and Sandy and Callum and Avram and, and you know it was a brilliant brilliant time and organically then you know somebody be like oh you know they're doing a piece in London fashion week and we need it for, you know they're doing a magazine piece on it and they want to take a girl from more into reality John will you go and do it so that's kind of how I fell into working with magazines and then you get to know for photographer and then the photographer books you again and that's kind of I didn't really ever want to be an editorial stylist to be honest with you I, lo- I loved working at Sassoon's but I, I fell into it and I, I've been lucky enough to work with you know, Tim Walker and Nick Knight and Annie Leibovich and all these great great photographers which is it, it's been an extraordinary journey really I, I'd like to think about a real 360 journey in hairdressing you know and, and, yeah, and work yeah. on, on, which we might talk about later I worked in an office for three years which was as a hairdresser which was really unusual but that's kind of how I fell into mm-hmm. editorial anyway Okay. Have you had any particular moment in life? Like what's your biggest hair moment that you look back at and go, that was a moment for me? Do you know what? A little bit later on, I, I left there. There's a big, there's a big, there's a big bit that we don't have to talk about what I did in between leaving Sassoon because I did some really interesting thing. But eventually a friend of mine called Michelle Feeney was the president of Mac Cosmetics. And she left there to go and work for PZ Cousins and she became the CEO of PZ Cousins Beauty. And so she asked me to come and be the creative director of hair. And so we talked about what we could do and what, what would be interesting to change the dynamic of, of, of we bought Fudge actually, as you know, which is an Australian brand. And we were like, what shall we do with Fudge to make it different? What's its USP? And what was interesting about Fudge was that it was 60% male, which is unusual. You know, most, most hair care products that are incredibly successful are female-based. So we decided that, you know, as I said, I have a very strong relationship with the British Fashion Council, and we were just starting to work on something called London Collections Men, which is now Men's Fashion Week. And so we said, why don't we sponsor it? So we sponsored Men's Fashion Week. And I think, you know, many, many years ago, when I go back to the students and we would do things like the clothes show, and they would say, right, you've got 40 models, 30 girls and 10 boys. We would sort of say to each other, oh, the 10 boys, it's just a bit of wax, and then 30 girls are what we've got to focus on. And, of course, at Fashion Week, it's a completely different different thing altogether. And I remember I worked with this incredible guy called Christopher Shannon, who was uh, from Liverpool, just a great designer, we, and we, we decided we were going to do glitter on every single boy. So we literally nailed all the hair into these shapes with wax so that it was quite sticky and then we literally covered everybody everybody's hair completely with glitter so it stuck to the wax and then we used a really strong hairspray to make it stay and and so every single boy on the runway had a completely full head of glittered hair and it, and it was a moment where I thought wow we, we're helping to change the perception of what men's hairdressing could be I mean it's over 10 years ago now but it did go viral and what was interesting was you suddenly held all these YouTube tutorials of young girls working out how to put glitter on the hair using stencils and it was interesting to think that you know for the first time ever men's fashion was starting to dictate what was happening with female fashion so that was a moment that was that i enjoyed because it was so colorful and this kind of rainbow of glitter but on on very heterosexual models but also it felt like we were changing the perceptions of the world which i thought was quite exciting yeah there's a there's something i want you to talk about it's not a direct question but I just wrote down as you were talking, understanding fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, hairdressers we're we're in we're, we're in the fashion industry at some levels. We're in the service industry, you know, at some levels. 
you could even argue that we're sort of almost in the hospitality industry at some levels. Um, what what should the average person do as a hairdresser to get a better understanding of what makes fashion tick? What makes it really tick? Because it's different in different places. It's different in the, you know, obviously in the US to 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 the UK to you know France, Paris, Milan, Italy, whatever. How can hairdressers, I know it's it's not even a fair question to ask you, how can a hairdresser listening to this have a better understanding of fashion and what really drives it and how it evolves and why it's important and how it impacts on what we do? I mean, I mean it's a big question and, and the answer is going to be slightly longer than anticipated, but it's important I explain why I think. Ultimately, when we started sponsoring London and New York Fashion Week, the reason for us doing it as a hair team was so we could then tell the consumer how to wear their hair. That was really why Sassoon sponsored that. And so what would have happened back in the day, because the world's changed radically, and I think, we've, you know, like all things with the world, if you don't move, if you don't move with it, you die, right? So that back then, what would have happened is, you know, would have, we started with, with New York, then London, then Paris, then Milan. So they would be the four major capitals. It was like this circus that travelled around for a month doing shows. And at the end, what would have happened is the people that went to Fashion Week would have been the buyers from, say, Barney's or Macy's or Harrods or Bergdorf or whatever. So the buyers would go. And obviously, a few celebrities would help, help to pro, heighten the profile of the show. But most importantly, with the fashion journalists. And the fashion journalists would see all of this stuff and, and they would, you know, be six months ahead of the game. So if you were in, if you were doing spring, summer shows, you were showing them in autumn, winter of the previous year. So you were always six months ahead. And so what would happen is, you know, you, you'd see the September shows by the time then the editors would pull, pull in whichever they wanted to show for, a, for an editorial piece, the buyers would all put their orders in for the following season. And six months later, you would see it on the cover of Vogue or you would see the, the stock in, you know, Barney's or Bergdorf or Harrods or wherever. And so the fashion elite were always really ahead of the crowd. And, and that was where we were very lucky because we could say to our clients, you know, we know what's going on. We were there. We were doing it. And Mark Hayes and I would take this, 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 information i mean how do you first of all it's really important to decide is it a trend or is it a fad so a fad is something really weird like pokemon it comes from nowhere explodes and then disappears again whereas a trend is usually brought on through sort of economic or financial or you know there's a reason so if you think about you know grunge in the, in the 90s and all that deconstruction because nobody had them would have banking crashes and nobody had any money but what you do is to identify the trend you look at the four capitals london new york fashion london new york paris and milan and you kind of see the reoccurring themes and that's kind of how you identify a trend really so what would have happened is there'd have been a show in september anna winter would have been sat in the front row the models would have come out six months later you'd have seen it on the cover of British Vogue. Christopher Bailey at Burberry changed all that because what he started to do was, you know, do Instagrams backstage and show, you know, this is what's happening before even the fashion elite had seen it. So what happened was that the consumer was almost seen it before, before the fashion stylists and, and, you know, the journalists. So the world's changed. You know, 1960, if you didn't have a, you know, Mary Quant, you know, miniskirt and, and, and a Vidal Sassoon bob, you were considered old-fashioned. And I don't think we can dictate to women like that anymore. So what there are, and trends move so quickly, you can't keep ahead of them. So all you can really do is, is follow the right people, people like Tim Blanks, who was a great, you know, who was at the head of style.com, who's a good friend of mine, who really keeps on top of those things. I mean, you have to watch. But I think the days of, of trend per se have gone. Because it's about, which is kind of this philosophy that you and I came from, and that's the soon thing. It's about respecting the individual and taking them into consideration. So I would never 
tell anybody that there's a trend per se anymore. There might be movements, but I, I think it's wrong to follow a trend. And I think that what you should do is just take that individual that's right in front of you and take them into consideration. And, and, and you know, if you do great colour, great haircut, great finish, kind of it's always in vogue, isn't it, regardless if it suits the individual. That, to me, is what I would do. I wouldn't ever follow a trend, which I don't think exists anymore anyway. That, that That's really interesting, and it, and it does tie in very much with... Uh, uh, the TV makeover show that you do, because I was going to ask you, well, I am asking you uh, to talk about suitability because, you know, when you're doing those makeover shows, it's not like you have some great young hot model in front of you. It's not like, you know, you have someone who who you could do anything to. You have to, well, you, maybe you can do anything to them, but you have to win them over. You want them to be happy. You want the audience to look at it and go, oh my God, what a difference. So talk to us about, suitability the average person listening to this i mean i'm i've said this before on the podcast as a hairdresser i was good at doing hair i had a really good solid technical creative training but i must admit i would sometimes look at people and and think well i have no idea what would really suit them so i'm just going to give them this great haircut that i know how to do suitability was always something that a lot of people talked about sometimes in a way that didn't make any sense so talk to us about suitability. What is it that you look for in a woman that, that you know, is, is going to make them happy and, you know, make them look the best version of themselves possible? It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I think all great hairdressers have got a bit of ego. And so what you want to do is do, do this really incredible haircut. It was like, wow, look how clean that line is. Look how beautiful that graduation is or, you know, whatever it is. But... Our job ultimately is to make somebody feel as good as they possibly can. That's what it's all about. So not taking into consideration their feelings and what they think is, is a death trap, I think. You, you, you have to take that into consideration. And their work-life balance. You know, some women do get up and blow dry the hair and tongue it every morning. Some women just won't. So I think that's really important. I think the lifestyle is massively important. And I, I do honestly believe on everybody's face, there's something that you can pick out. You know, it's the cheekbone, it's the jaw, it's the eye. You know, there's something that you can pick out. But there are, there are some very clear rules. You know, if you've got a really big, round face, you know, what you don't want to do is cut fringing, which is cuts the face in half and makes everything look wider. You know, if you've got a very, very long face, you don't want, you know, an A-line bob that's kind of really long with no fringe that's going to make everything look longer and narrower. And I think what you've got to do is, you can, you, you know, I use my hands quite often. I lift it off and think, is that right? It's going to make the head look longer. Will it make it look shorter? If I raise the crown, will that give more that? You know, for example, if somebody's got kind of a round face, but they definitely want a bob, which is not the best thing because it makes everything look rounder, then I might try and at least not put a fringe in it so that I can kind of elongate the front there. And then I might try and raise the crown so everything just looks a little bit longer. But there's no point in having an incredible haircut with epic graduation and a, and a, and a line that looks like it's been cut by Luke Skywalker with a lightsaber if it makes somebody look, you know wrong i mean it's pointless right i mean then, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons you're doing it for your ego and you're not doing it so that somebody's like oh my god thank you you've made me feel a million times better and, and ultimately that's what it's about i mean there's a there's a question of even that when you get you get into thanks because it's kind of when somebody thanks you and they're kind of gushing it's you know it kind of makes you feel good too so there's there's a question about that but ultimately your job is to make that person in front of you look as good as you can. And there are times when I just say, no, I'm not, like, if that's what you want to do, then it, we can't do it here. That's not the right thing. You know, so if I really felt strongly about it, I wouldn't do it, it whether it was a haircut or also with a color, you know, uh, I, I'm very cautious about, about that. You know, I'm, uh, I would rather not take the money in the till than, than do the wrong thing, get the backlash. I just wouldn't bother. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting hearing you say that because you said before, I forget the word you used, you were describing your Instagram. And you said some of the stuff I put on my Instagram, I think you said it's a bit cuckoo, you know, <laughs> meaning that it's a bit out there, it's a bit over the top, it's not your traditional beauty. But you've sort of covered all bases because if the person that is wearing that haircut feels fantastic with it, that's what it's that's really all it's about. If, yeah. Whether you can look at it and go, yeah, I think that's beautiful or not, is almost irrelevant if the person on the other end of it feels, oh, my God, I look fantastic with this because that's who they are. And that's the bit about suitability, which which I used to trade off on a lot, that mm -hmm. if people feel good with it, then that is what makes them look good. Do you know what I mean? Regardless. That's um, just, it's all very well, you know trying to boost your ego and doing a really bonkers haircut and, you know, make yourself look great in the salon in front of your contemporaries when the woman that walks out is in tears because she hates it and you've made her look odd. I mean, that's nobody wins in that situation. You know, the idea is that they walk out and say, I, I'm going back there because I really enjoyed it. And, and and that thing I said about, you know, sending people away, nine times out of ten when you send somebody away and they'll go somewhere else and have it done, they do come back. They're like, actually, you know what, you were right. It might take a while, but, you know, you were right. And I think that's very important in the colour arena as well. You know, I mean, I'm not a colourist, but I have this one client who's got waist-length hair, waist, waist, waist-length. I'm, I'm not going to mention any names, but she's an incredibly famous model who's just graced the cover of British Vogue. But anyway, she's got waist-length white hair. And, and, you know, we do a few bleached highlights in there, and she's, she's really wanting a full head bleach. But, you know, doing that on waist-length hair, it, it's a death trap. It's just not, it's not worth it for our, for our business or for hers. You know, it's just, so it's better to send somebody away than to do the wrong thing. I really strongly believe that. Because it, it might be a quick win in terms of the money, but long-term you, you lose your reputation and, and money. So it's, it's never a win for anybody really long-term. Yeah. We've talked about lots of different things that you've done uh, in your career, very diverse career, and you're not finished with it yet. Um, I've got my own theory about about you um, and what makes you so successful. But, but what would you say the ingredients are behind why you're so successful? I mean, I don't think I'm that successful. And I look around the other people who are much more successful. And I think, God, I wish mm -hmm. I was there. I wish I could. You know, I think it's that I think for in any trade, once you think you're the best at it and you know everything, it's over, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, we talked earlier about this idea about you know cutting hair technically or not knowing. Understand, you know, for me, when I see a new kid that comes into the salon, if I'm teaching them or training them, and even though they've got no idea about hair, but they might push it behind their ear and try and push it a bit higher and push it around the head to make it look a bit better, even though they can't cut hair. To me, that's that makes me think that they've, they've inherently got something that they understand something. They're not formula, they're not formulaic, they're not ABC. But but what I do know, and it's what I, you know, obviously I, I kind of looked after Sassoon's in Asia, which was you know an ex it was the biggest selling brand in the world, and you know obviously I worked there a lot with Vidal, and it was incredible fun. But what I do know is that in Japan, and I see it in Germany too, this idea that if you're going to be, uh, you know, somebody who packs the, the 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 biscuits into a box, and you work in Japan, you're going to be the best person at, at doing that. And, and that's for me. I mean, I remember working many, many years ago, and I just qualified in Sassoon's, and it was a very long in, salon in Leeds. We have probably about 20 chairs. It was a long, narrow salon. And you'd be standing there, and you'd look left and look right, and you were like, I'm up against fierce competition here. So everything I did, I, I tried my hardest. And I think if 
if you don't want to put 100% into it, just saying, actually, I think I'll, I'll walk away, but thank you, but no, thank you. Because that's the only way to be successful, I think, isn't it? To put your heart and soul into it. Otherwise, don't bother. For me, mediocrity means nothing. I mean, nah, it's just so nah, isn't it? I, you know, it's, it, you're either in or you're out. But that kind of space of nothingness, I don't care if people look at my work and say, that it's revol- revolting. I mean, we've had some... You know, Julie Verhoeven, who's the artist, we do that really bonkers hair on her. You know, we've had some brutal comments, but it wasn't about them, right? It was about us pushing the boundaries of creativity and doing something that wasn't perceived necessarily as natural beauty or general beauty. It was our version of that, right? And mm. whatever you do, I've realised that somebody's going to like it, somebody's not going to like it. That's that's the truth. So I have to make sure that me and the person in front of me like it, and that's all that I can do, and do it to the best of my ability. Yeah. And and, and I, I don't think I've ever truly walked away from anything and thought that was perfect. There's always something you can do, isn't there? You know, like Mark Hayes to death for bloody hours cutting a haircut. You know what he's like, I love him. But I'm like, you've got to stop at some point. You've just got to stop, right? But, but yeah. for me, I've never been it perfect yet. You know, yeah. I'll keep trying, but yeah, it's not happened. Yeah. Now, what I what I would say, if someone said, what is the, 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 the thing that sets John Vial apart? I would say he's just not intimidated by anything or anyone. You know, you just you just radiate this supreme confidence i mean you know i don't know you well but we've known each other on and off over the years yeah and you you know you tick off this list of stuff that you are doing or have done and you you just never seem intimidated i mean i know all the names i mean you're not dropping names but you know there are names that you mention there are clients and parties and events that you're at there's people that you socialize with that a lot of people would be really intimidated to be in that situation. And I think that that's part of your secret weapon is that you you come from this, like a lot of hairdressers do, you come from a fairly humble background. Mm-hmm. And so in many cases, that makes people more intimidated. But you just couldn't give a stuff about who they are or what the event is, what the occasion is. They're going to get, you know, John Vial at full bore, and they seem to not be able to get enough of it. So, um, talk to us about that. <laughs> you know, you know, it, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, and I say to people a lot, you know, perception's reality. And without oversharing, I mean, you don't need to know the ins and outs, but we were really poor. I didn't realize how poor we were as children until later on in life. But in 1978, we moved to a new house and we had an indoor toilet. I thought that was quite normal because everybody on the <laughs> state that I grew up in had an external toilet that didn't have yeah. inside toilets. And it wasn't until years later, back and thought, God, we were quite backward, you know, at that point. But we, everybody on the estate was the same. And and, and we we were all poor, and so that you you know you strive to do better and do better. And actually, I'm I'm very transparent about this. Other people get uncomfortable about it, but I'm not. But but I was so insecure, and you know, and I don't think I, I tried not to show it. But I was so desperately worried. You know, should, even in a Sassoon's art director's meeting, should I should I say that or no? They might think I'm a bit of a loser. Better not say anything. You know, da, 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 da. and you know, and, and and what I found was drink drink gave me confidence, and unfortunately, I abused that. You know, and I. And what I've learned in the 11, the 11 years, nearly 12 years of sobriety, is that I can't please all the people all the time. All I can do is put my head, I mean, I'm not trying to make this sound like Live Aid, mm-hmm. but all I can do is put my head on the pillow at night and think, you know, you've been a good human, John. If you've upset anybody, you've apologised. You've made all of your amends. And ultimately, what I now know is if somebody likes me, they like me. If they don't like me, they don't like me. 
I'm not going to waste my time worrying about it. You know, if, if they like me, they like me. If they don't like me, they don't like me. There will always be somebody who doesn't like me. Hopefully there will always be somebody who does like me. And so I've just learned that you just have to take me for what I am because I can't really change it, you know. And so it, being sober has definitely helped that. But but it's interesting that you saw that because when we first met, I certainly would have been the heights of my alcoholism, to be honest. And it would have that that confidence that drink gave me would have probably gave the perception that I, that I was very confident. But I, I wasn't. And I think most people really aren't. But the but the alcohol was gone, but the confidence that alcohol gave you has remained. That is the good thing. Mm. That's fantastic. Maybe I, I mean, I think I had that confidence as a kid. You know, yeah. I remember... It's funny, I remember very clearly, so I kind of, I must have been four at the oldest, the nativity play, and I was playing Joseph, and I remember them saying to me, John, you need to come over now because we're going to do a rehearsal, and then I was like, I'm in the middle of the climbing frame, I'm not getting over there, kid, and, and you know, so they said, somebody else is going to be Joseph, and I'm thinking, I remember thinking to myself, they won't, because they won't be as good as me, and I was Joseph, you know, I, I was Joseph, I was very <laughs> Really, I probably lost confidence when I started working at Sassoon because I was surrounded by epic hairdressers. Yeah. And so that's possibly where it started, where I started to lose confidence, really. And that's probably when the drinking started, if I'm being really honest. Okay. All right. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, now, a lot of the listeners probably don't realize that you also have a salon, uh, Salon Sloan in uh, London's uh, Sloan Square. Uh, so talk to us about your salon. Um, I want to ask you one very pointed question about it, and that is, what do you wish you knew before you opened a salon? Uh, I, mean, I mean, my gut reaction without thinking about that is I wish that we'd not spent £600,000 on a refurbishment. <laughs> because what I realised <laughs> is that, right? I mean, you know, my clients really weren't looking at whether or not that herringbone edging on the floor with its brass trim, you know, that was that had to be seven millimetres wide because otherwise it wasn't, you know, I realised they don't really care about that. No. What they care about is that it's a clean environment and it's safe and that you'll give them the best you can do. So that that was my the, my biggest downfall. And then I also realised that actually, you know, the hardest part, my best friend Callum, has a salon in Liverpool. And I remember him saying to me, you know, the hardest part, John, is, is, is staff. And I'm like, get out of here. Like, I'm great with people. I, I know. He was right. Dealing with staff is really hard. And we've, uh, you may or may not know, but I sit on the advisory board of the British Beauty Council. And actually here in the UK, and I think it's a global problem, the hairdressing's in free fall. It's really in free fall. And so trying to, there's two reasons for that. And I'm going to touch on them briefly because I think it's really important. And I think it's a global problem. The first is that stylists that are working for us now since the pandemic have decided when they come back, they want to be freelance. And so they want to come in and either be freelance here in the UK. And I can't speak for anywhere else in the world. But if you have regular hours, then you must be employed. If you have irregular hours, then you can be freelance. So once you start employing a, a stylist who, who is a freelance person, they can't have regular hours, which doesn't suit Mrs. Smith, who wants to come every Thursday at nine o'clock. You know, that, that doesn't suit her. So that's starting to affect. The other thing is, of course, if they don't have a client until 12 o'clock, they don't come in until 12 o'clock. You know, that means you're turning away the walk away. So this problem, this idea that, that, that their businesses within your businesses is, 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 has proven to be really detrimental. And actually, one of my best friends who trained me, Vidal Sim in Leeds, has her own salon in New York. And she was telling me that she's going to leave. It. When I say a salon, it's hard that she hires, but she hires it month by month by month. And actually, the new thing, which is great for her, but dreadful for us as salon owners, is that in Manhattan, you can actually now jump on an app as a freelance hairdresser and hire a space for an hour. Yeah. 
So this this means that salons are in free fall. So that's the, that's the first problem. The second problem is that unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, from which side of the coin you sat, is that the British government are doing everything in their power to keep unemployment figures down, which is great. But what it means is they're encouraging young people to get into education. And unfortunately, lots of really naive parents are saying to their children, go and get an education, go and get further education. Uh, some statistics I know which, which blew my mind, because I'm, I'm getting ready to do another TED talk about this, actually, is that in 1920, 700 people had a degree. By the 1980, there was 19,000. By, by 2011, there was 194,000 people. And this year, we're on to get 272,000 young people to get a degree. Which brings with it a couple of problems. That's first of all, that's that's forty, almost forty percent of eighteen-year-olds, which means there's less of them going into hairdressing, retail, and, and trades as we would have called them, electricians, plumbers, etc. But but you know, the the other, the other thing is that there's, there's this situation where we've got. I mean, I don't want to go off tangent too much, but we've got what I would call inflation within education in this idea that because so many people have now got a degree, they need a master's to get where somebody did have a degree. Or when somebody has a master's, they now need a doctorate. So there's this overinflated thing and there's all these people, you know, I I then very briefly, well, not very briefly, for four or five years, I worked at PZ Cousins, which were brilliant. But I know when they looked through CVs, if you didn't have a CV, you were just thrown to one side. If you didn't have a degree on your CV. And it became a standing joke. They'd be like, John, what do you think? Given that I was in the office, the person who knew more about hair and beauty than anybody else. I'd say, why are you asking me? I don't have a degree. You shouldn't ask me. I don't have a degree or a master's in it. You know, this idea that we're measured on academia, that young people feel that they have to have a degree to be, you know, because everybody else has got one. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. So you leave college or university at, at, you know, 22 or 23 with this huge debt, whereas hairdressers at 22 or 23 are driving around in their own car, they're living their life, they're mixing with great people, they're not really... I mean, I still think at 53, when I'm in the salon, I I need to get a proper job. This isn't really a job, is it? Having fun, gossiping and having cups of tea with your client and doing fabulous hairdos. I mean, that's not really work per se, is it? Mm -hmm. By comparison to, and I know, sitting in an office, which is, a, you know, about as much fun as watching paint dry, to be really honest. So, so that, that's an, that, they're big challenges that we face when you open a salon because you've got no young people coming through and those that are through want to dance to the beat of their own drum. And the pandemic has meant that we all, you know, for me, whether it's an office, whether it's a salon, this idea that Monday to Friday, nine to five, or Tuesday to Saturday, nine to five as a hairdresser, it's gone. And I don't know what the solution is, but what I do know is there's no point in us pretending that it's going to get better because it's not. So we're going to have to adapt to it. And how that happens, I don't know, but I do know we're going to have to adapt to it. And we've got big challenges ahead. I mean, we've lost some great names here in the UK. Mm, Yeah, no, definitely. Well, you you sort of were answering as you were talking what I was going to ask you, which is what are the solutions? Uh, Because we're all looking for that solution. In in your business, what are have you done anything to adapt and give people more flexibility to change what it means to be a stylist? What are some of the practical things you might have integrated? It is slightly different for us. I mean, I don't know, I sort of didn't talk about this, but after I left the Soons, I did a very brief period at Harrods, which was the largest salon in the world. It's extraordinary. I mean, for those people who I don't know, I didn't know until I got there what it meant, but 25,000 square feet in hair and beauty is a big space. It's probably about three or four football pitches. It's a big space. It went this huge space. So I did that for a period. But, but I then went to work with Josh and Bell and we had this salon called Real Hair, which was, you know, I'm very, we were all, we've always been very transparent. You know, that small salon was, it was only one small salon and it was turning over, 15 years.
years ago, three million pounds a year. So it was doing very, very well. Mm -hmm. But it was always this idea that it was a drop in place for people like me that were out working on a session and suddenly had to go and do their clients. So, so we did adapt to that. We've always adapted to that. It's been slightly easier for us because a lot of our team do drop in and drop out. And so we've kind of got our heads around that. But we've always sort of worked that way. You know, most, in fact, none of our, not one of our staff, not one, apart from the assistants, works a five day week. None of them do. So we've kind of started to adjust to it. And we did that 15 years ago. But I do think that you have to, you just have to bend like a reed in the wind, you know, be, be, be grounded and have the sound really grounded, but you need to be able to bend like a reed in the wind with your team. Otherwise, you're just going to lose them. You know, it's, it's that simple. Mm. Do, you, do you see any businesses anywhere inside hairdressing? So, you know, salons or not necessarily, perhaps in other industries that you look at and think, oh, my God, that is the model for small business of the future. Do you see anything? There's a smart boy called Mark Woolley who's done something called an electric space. And what that, I've not been yet, and I must go. You know, he's a good guy, Mark. He's very smart. And what he's done is he's got this space where people can drop in. And it's kind of, there's a place where you can hang out and have coffee. And, you know, it, it's just a whole different way of working. It's not like a regular salon. You know, there are ping pong tables and all sorts in there. It's just, it's more like a cultured space that you can drop in and get your hair cut while you're there rather than that traditional salon. And, and that's the way it's going to have to be, I think. It's going to have to be, you know that way i mean it's it's exciting but but it's nerve-wracking in equal measure yeah yeah i had mark on an earlier podcast episode mm. uh so I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes for anyone who wants to find out more about that because yeah it is an interesting business model that he's got there um, and i see variations on a theme of that in in different countries and different states in the u.s as well um what what influences you or or what or who influences you with with the way you evolve as a as a creative and as a business person you know i, I was diagnosed with adhd which of course i funnily enough i'm friends with one of my old teachers from school and i said to her you know I, i've been diagnosed with adhd should i and john i could have told you that 45 years ago i mean <laughs> yeah. but, but what that means is that, that, that you that if you're not in and inspired and uh, then you 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 kind of lose the plot, really. And so that's quite good for me because, you know, when I'm cutting hair, you know, I just can't bear doing the same old thing day in, day out on, on, every, on, on one person's head or doing the same job day in, day out. And I'm really lucky to, you know, do some work with the British Fashion Council. I do some work with, uh, you know, with, with some great photographers. I work with the Beauty Council. I teach sometimes at Pinewood, which is what obviously they've got a big academy there. And it's amazing. It's where they made Star Wars and James Bond and all that sort of stuff. I lecture at the University of the Arts. And so for me... I'm super stimulated by the people I'm surrounded by. You know, some of my best friends are really incredible architect, architects and, and, and artists. And, it, you know, you have to surround yourself with the people you want to be like, right? That's as simple as that for me. Yeah. And that, have, they, they're the people who inspire me. Right. Do you have partners in, in your business? Yeah, Belle. Belle's my partner. Belle, Belle Cannon's my business partner. Oh, I do. Uh, and, and actually, very, I, I'm very transparent about everything. Belle, Belle's got a larger part of the company than I have because I want to go out and do all the things. And, you know, if she's going to be doing more of the work, it's only fair that she takes more of the share, you know, and that, that's good with me. So, so yeah, I have, so, so I'm really lucky because somebody does all that mundane stuff, you know, make sure the taxman gets paid and make sure that the staff get paid and make sure there's toilet roll and all those really thrilling things that you do when you own a salon. Yeah. What, what would you say your biggest strength was? I think 
my mum was re- my mum always used to say to me I'd say I don't like that she'd be like well you know and she'd, she'd always I remember once saying to me you know you would say mum if I said that wall was white you would say it was black and she'd say well that's just a question of lighting and physics right <laughs> so I have this incredible uh, background of, of, of being able to try and convince somebody that something should be different and so I think my strength is being able to really work with teams and really embrace their differences and, 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 you know, all, all good people can't be good at all things. Right. So I think we're, I think I'm pretty good at leading a team and making each one feel like they're a valuable point, because as I explain over and over again, if you've got a chain around your neck and it's got big links and small links and big, you know, huge gold ones and small little silver ones and, and the smallest little silver one breaks, then the whole chain is redundant, right? Doesn't matter how big your gold one is or how big the pendant is or the diamond. If one of those tiny links breaks, then the whole chain is, is redundant. And so it's about ensuring that everybody that I work with, whether it's Fashion Week backstage or in the salon, feel that they are valued and they're important. Because actually without them, I couldn't do a show at Fashion Week. Without the people in the salon, I couldn't run a business. So it's, it's about being fair. And if the only way I think to really run any business, whether it's a backstage team or a salon, is about ensuring that you win, that they win. And if you do that, I think we're all smiling. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the perfect note to end up on. But I do want to ask you one thing. What do you wish you were better at? Um, I wish I wasn't so last minute. I'm, I'm all like, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And then, I mean, I'm never late. I'm never late. I find tardiness unbearable. I think somebody being late insinuates that they think their time's more important than yours. So I'm never late. But if I'm going on a job tomorrow, I know it's a specific job, and I know I'm with a photographer, and I know they want that, and I'm thinking, I must go and clean my kit, I must go and clean my kit, I must go and clean my kit. And then an hour before I'm going, I'm hysterically cleaning the kit. Thinking, what, you've had all weekend, why didn't you do this? I wish I, was, I, wish I could do that more. But that's ADHD getting sucked in, and I, I, I find focusing very hard on things that don't, that I don't that don't give me joy yeah okay all right well uh where can people connect with you on uh instagram or i think probably instagram got me the most isn't it although again as i told you that that statistic of facebook with 62 million views it depends on your demographic i mean our age group are technically facebook you know 30 year olds are instagram and of course the kids are tiktok which i don't do because granddad doesn't need to be dancing on tiktok so that's not going to happen so instagram's usually where people reach me Right. Okay. Well, I'll put those links uh, on our website in the show notes uh, at Grow My Salon Business for today's podcast. Uh, If you listen to this podcast with John Vial and have enjoyed it, then do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. So, John Vial, to wrap up, thank you so much for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Thank you, Anthony Whitsby. It's been a joy. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.